Hey, welcome. Dave Rowland coming up about 15 minutes from now, 10, 15 minutes, somewhere right around there. Uh, we'll talk about uh, what's going on in the Springfield schools and the pocket constitution. Uh, we'll talk about the uh, mayor of Kansas City arguing uh, that police funding mandates should be tossed by the Missouri Supreme Court. we got a lot of ground to cover with him, but we got a lot of ground to cover with Mike Murphy, Como Buzz with one Z, ComoBuzz.com. Columbia City Councilman has taken a new job as a lobbyist for the Missouri Realtors. We sort of touched on this uh, the last time we spoke, uh, but I'm curious to find out, uh, because I, I see there's a, a column, an article on this that you wrote, Mike, uh, and uh, it's called Opinion, Beware Comparison Between Lobbyist and uh, Trees. What, what, what's going on here? Well... It's. It, I'm trying to clarify the issue for folks because it's complicated for um, normal folks to just understand what's going on here. The issue is, uh, it's not that he's a lobbyist. There's no. Uh, you could argue it, and it has been argued, and it's argued at Jeff City. Uh, the governor's weighed in and doesn't think lobbyists should be in elected office. But the bottom line is, there's no real law that keeps a lobbyist out of elected office. And, and our former mayor, Brian Treese, was a registered lobbyist also. And he left office. And Knoth's kind of making the argument now, or kind of putting it out there, his supporters are there. Well, if it's okay for Treese, why is it not okay for Knoth? But the issues are totally different. Um, Knoth is a lobbyist for the Missouri Realtors. The Realtors are, uh, they, they advocate for individual property rights, on behalf of their realtor members. The Columbia Board of Realtors is an aff affiliate of theirs, and that's also what they do. And they're a strong lobbying group. They're, they're smart, they're funded, they got a CEO, uh, and they're involved in almost all land use issues here in Columbia. So the problem is, or the, the, what's popped up now, is that Knoth, who works for them, is on the payroll with them now, and advocates for them on behalf of individual people's property rights, during the day, uh, at night, would be sitting in judgment as a Columbia City Councilman with property, right issue, property rights issues that appear before them regularly and constantly. I mean, if you think about Columbia, Columbia has, uh, gen is generally regarded as having harsh uh, property rights restrictions. You can't use any property in Columbia unless it's approved by the city council uh, for any use. Otherwise, you're using it illegally. So every subdivision, every development, every rezoning, every every infrastructure commitment, every conditional land use uh, permit in which realtors all have a financial interest all come before the city council. So Councilman Knoth, who I think otherwise, I'd like to point out, I think he was on his way to being a really good councilman um, on, a, on a city council that really needs some good councilmen, but Every decision he makes, every land use decision he makes now is going to have this certain taint on it. It's going to be, um, we're going to bring up this idea that he's basically, he's going to be accused of being bought and paid for by the realtors, which in essence he is. But yet he's saying he can pull this off and um, he's indicating he's not going to resign. So in the background already, his first ward constituents are putting together a recall campaign to remove him. And this is all only a week or so old. So, you know, it's a, it's a developing story. We'll see where it goes. Yeah, I'll be curious to see. I, I, I remember we just, we had a recall, I don't know, about uh, eight years ago, Brian, wasn't it, when that woman uh, who was going after vaping or something? Or, yeah, that sounds right. Probably 10 to, I don't know. 10 that to, could have been. Could have been. But that's the only other time I can remember a city council person being 
recalled out of office. Am I, am I right on that? Yeah, I think there's two. And I have a note on that somewhere, not in front of me. There's, there's two in history. I looked it up, or two in recent history, uh, last two decades anyway. Uh, uh, the, the one you're talking about was the most recent one, I think, in the Fifth Ward. Uh, but then she resigned, which is what I actually think will happen here. I don't think there's been a successful recall. And I think there's been two, two attempts in the last maybe two decades. So, uh, you know, we'll see. But the question that you asked originally here is, uh, so, so Treese, he's a lobbyist. He had a lobbying firm and a, and a, lot, his, a firm that provided a lot of other services, uh, government affairs research and stuff like that also. He didn't have, you could accuse him of some conflict conflicts of interest that came up from time to time uh and, and he did and some of them made the paper you know and it, it would come up occasionally but there's no real comparison to you know uh Therese's day job compared to what Cano's day job would be and then what happened to Therese ultimately is they passed a law in Jeff City I think in 2018 that uh because uh, lawmakers were moving right from the legislature to become lobbyists, and they still had campaign committees. They still had money, and that's what interested uh, the legislature. So they passed a law that said you cannot become a registered lobbyist without immediately dissolving your campaign committee and your and your money and dispersing the money. So translated is you can't be a lobbyist and have a campaign account. Well. Collateral damage was a few pe- people out of municipal government or school districts, Treese being the most prominent one, who was already a sitting elected official and happened to be a lobbyist. Uh, a local attorney here filed a complaint with the Ethics Commission. The Ethics Commission took a look at it, spent two years, kind of ignored it. He wasn't really doing anything wrong. and he w- It wasn't the intent of the law. Somebody tried to amend that law to... Uh, uh, make an exemption for him and others like him. The governor vetoed it. Shortly thereafter, the Ethics Commission ruled that, indeed, Treese is in violation of state law. You cannot have a campaign committee and be a registered lobbyist. So Treese recognizing that you can't become elected mayor of Columbia without spending some money. And if you spend more than 500 bucks, you got to have a campaign committee. So he announced his resignation, acknowledging that, that state law now says you can't be both. So that's kind of that's what happened to Trees. A lot of people don't really understand or follow. They just knew he had to leave his office. He's basically collateral damage of a law that was written for reasons other, uh, for intents other than anything to do with him, and uh, and it, it just caused him to have to leave being in office. I'll be uh, real curious to see how this unfolds. Uh, before I let you go, uh, you've got a piece here about log boats, dark matter. Uh, and uh, how it did uh, up in Denver. It's amazing. That, that's been one of their original brews. It's really good. It, it, I think it's one of my favorites. Uh, no, it, no, I want to say no surprise, but it's always kind of a stunner that all of a sudden they entered into, this is the arguably, or certainly one of the most prominent uh, brew competitions in the world. Certainly in the country, it's uh, pretty renowned, and it's another gold medal for log boats. So that, that's, that's just pretty cool. That literally is, they won the gold medal uh, up in Denver. Is, is, it, it says uh, dark matter. I don't drink, so forgive my ignorance here. Is that actually a dark beer? Yeah, it's a porter, which is a dark brown beer, yes. So Logboat uh, is putting us on the map in the world of craft brewery. Absolutely. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else is going on? It, 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 the, how, did, how did everything go with biscuits? Uh, That's this weekend, so... 
the uh, Tree Line, formerly Roots and Blues Festival, was scheduled for this weekend, canceled a month ago, as everybody knows. That's still kind of a, a, a story there uh, in progress also as they uh, reel from, you know, um, they ran out of money and they owe some people some money. So that's that's in the news. But this this fledgling Biscuits, Beats and Brews free music festival, That's this is its third year in Rocheport. They uh, they moved it up uh, a week to fill this weekend. They took they got one of the headliners from Roots and Blues as well as some other acts. They got a lot of prominent uh, regional and local acts, and they're doing a three day festival out in Rocheport uh, starting this Friday. And I think that's going to be a pretty big thing. Uh, you should know. Uh, pro tip here because I've been researching it because I'm going to go out there. Rocheport's a small little village uh, is about to be descended upon by a lot of people, but they're parking people out in the less bourgeois uh, wine buildings uh, right off the highway and shuttling people in around the clock for the whole uh, the whole festival. So if you want to go out there, that's an easy way to get in and out of town. That, I'm planning on doing that Saturday. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Wow, it sounds like great fun. You want to find out what's going on around town? Uh, Como Buzz with one Z, Como Buzz. Dot com. Mike Murphy, thank you for being with us. Thank you. All right, buddy. Take care. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Dave Rowland is coming up. Several cases in uh, Missouri. Uh, Missouri Supreme Court weighs the constitutionality of a law banning sleeping on public land. And that's where we'll start off on the Think Tank Thursday. Gary Nolan Zimmer, Radio Network. It's 20 minutes after 11 on a Think Tank Thursday and uh, one of my two favorite attorneys in all the world, Dave Rowland, is with us and he's my favorite because he loves to sue the government to protect my freedom. Dave, welcome. How are you? Doing great, Gary. How are you doing? I, too, am well and I am curious about, and this is it's not like I'm ever going to go sleeping on uh, public lands but the Missouri Supreme Court is looking at the constitutionality of a law banning sleeping on public land. Yeah, and it, it's kind of a weird case. So Missouri has a few provisions in its state constitution that restrict the way that the legislature is allowed to pass legislation. Um, so, for example, it has a single subject requirement. In other words, you have to limit the scope of the bill to only addressing one subject, and all of the parts of the bill are supposed to relate to that subject. But one of the things that we see in practice is that every year, every session, the legislature passes a number of bills where it says that the subject is one thing, but they end up adding in a bunch of amendments that relate to entirely different uh, issues. And um, so under the Missouri Constitution, those kinds of bills should be unconstitutional. Part of the problem that we have is that the Missouri Supreme Court has not always been consistent in how they determine what constitutes a single subject and what does not. Um, they also have not always been consistent about what do you do if you have a violation of the single subject rule? Do you invalidate all parts that do not relate to the stated subject, or does the entire bill, including the parts that relate to the stated subject, have to be ruled unconstitutional? That's what is at issue in this case about um, the homeless sleeping on public property. So the bill that was passed says that it is a bill relating to public subdivisions. 
And it does not seem to indicate anywhere in the title of the bill or the subject of the bill that it includes the criminalization of individual behaviors. In other words, the individuals who might end up sleeping on public land. And so this went up to the Missouri Supreme Court yesterday, and I'm not real sure exactly how they're going to come out on this. It it seemed like the attorneys that were challenging this bill uh, did a fairly good job, but um, part of the problem that they have is that their primary argument was not that um, the part of the bill dealing with sleeping on public lands didn't relate to uh, political subdivisions, but rather that there were other parts of the bill that they were not challenging that didn't relate to that. So they were arguing basically the entire bill has to be struck down because there are parts of it that did not relate to political subdivisions, even though they were kind of saying that um, it's at least conceivable that sleeping on public land might fall within that definition, might fall within that subject. So I honestly, I, I can't predict how the court's going to come down on this because they have not been consistent in how they deal with this issue. Well, um, is the, is the law poorly crafted? Uh, well, I think inherently a law that says you're not allowed to sleep on public land is, is poorly crafted. But as far as the, the structure of the bill, does it violate the Constitution according to my no, reading I, of the Constitution? I, I Absolutely. The one, the one subject at a time. Uh, is that law crafted poorly? Oh, that part of the Constitution? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I think it's quite clear. The problem is... Um, let me let me explain a little bit about how judges think, especially back a couple of decades ago. Conservative judges were focused very heavily on concerns about judicial activism. They came at just about any constitutional issue with the perspective that ruling a law that's been passed by a legislature unconstitutional should be an absolute last resort. You should not do this um, unless there is no other conclusion that you might reach because doing so would be considered judicial activism or might be considered judicial activism. And so there's an entire generation of attorneys and judges that look at provisions like this one, the single subject provision of the Missouri Constitution, and because it is simply a broad statement in the Constitution, there are all sorts of ways that they can come up with to say, oh, well, maybe this isn't a problem after all. And so when you have kind of um, this attitude of deference to the government, that makes these broader constitutional provisions um, less effective because they do not pin down precise circumstances under which judges have to rule things unconstitutional, right? Um, And so what we started to see roughly 20 years ago is a new wave of attorneys and judges, of which I am one, that argues, look, we don't have to defer when the Constitution has put limits on the government's power. The whole point of putting limits on the government's power is that you should not take for granted 
that what they are doing is constitutional. You have to assume that the people intended to prevent them from using authority in this kind of way, and therefore you need to construe the people's will broadly, not the government's intentions. And so that's really the conflict that we've seen, and it's a conflict among judges that have conservative or libertarian leanings. Um, and, and so that's really the issue here. I don't think that the Missouri Constitution as drafted is a problem at all. I think the problem is that we have now had a generation of judges who think that if there is a broadly worded constitutional provision, you don't have to give it effect. Um, it's kind of the same problem that we run into with the Ninth Amendment, Gary. We talk about that every so often. The Ninth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says that the fact that they've enumerated certain rights in the Bill of Rights does not mean that those are the only ones that are protected. You're, you have unenumerated rights that the courts are still bound to protect against governmental overreach. But one of the judges that was from that, that school that I talked about was Robert Bork, who at one point had been nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court. And when he was asked about the Ninth Amendment, his response was, it's an inkblot. I have no idea what this is supposed to mean, so I can't possibly apply it. That's the kind of attitude that, that we're talking about, where you take a provision that simply because it's broadly worded, it gives judges um, – or at least they perceive themselves as having, as having been given an excuse not to apply the intent of the constitutional provision. So I'm hopeful that in this case, the judges will look at this and they'll see it's obvious that several parts of this bill that was passed um, do not relate in any way to the stated subject. I think that should mean that the entire bill gets invalidated. But We'll just have to wait and see whether that's actually how the Supreme Court decides to deal with it. It's possible that they could come up with a solution that says, you know what, we're going to leave this in place. We're going to leave the entire bill in place. I don't think that's necessarily likely, but it's definitely possible. Well, you, you brought up the Constitution in that uh, response. And so uh, from here, we have to jump down to Springfield. Yeah. Where uh, there, and I think I see the problem uh, on the what the school's upset about, and I don't think it's the passing out of the Constitution. I think it's the stamp on the back of it. But yeah, uh, I think but hold you're on, right. But hold on a second, because Brian, how much time do I have left here? About a minute. About a minute. Um, giving the Constitution out should be a problem. All these, uh, all this uh, group has to do, I think, is blot out that. Uh, that that stamp uh, that says who they are, you know, where they got these constitutions uh, from the 917 Society, and I think they're good to go. Very possibly. Um, so just for a little bit of background, the policy that the school has um, prohibits advertising by certain groups, and the constitutions they're wanting to hand out do have this mark indicating that uh, the nineteen uh, the nine seventeen society provided them. It's got their name, logo, and website, and the school is saying that's effectively an advertisement, and that's what they have the issue with. Um. So I, you know, initially I was uh, I was like, why would you not want these kids to have a constitution? I mean, if I were in charge of a school system, I'd be teaching that. It'd be a year-long course. Um, and, and I couldn't figure out what the problem was. Until I got a little further down, I see this 917 Society. Uh, I think 
that's all they have to do. Take that off, then they don't have a, a disclaimer, and these kids can have access to the operating manual for the federal government. Quick break. We're going to be right back. More cases. The Supreme Court in Missouri. The Gary Nolan Show. This is the Gary Nolan Show. He's litigious. That's what I like about him. Because he sues the government to protect your freedom. It's Dave Rowland, MoFreedom.org on the uh, interwebs out there. And uh, Kansas City Mayor urges police funding mandate should be tossed by the Missouri Supreme Court. Details, please. Yeah, so let me just say the Missouri Supreme Court had a very busy day yesterday. Like they they dealt with three different cases with um, important constitutional questions, and this this was one of those. And um, it has to do with a statute and a constitutional amendment that were passed uh, last year that effectively requires the Kansas City government to fund its police department at a certain level. Um, as you know, a, a lot of progressive activists over the last few years have called for defunding the police. And so the Missouri uh, legislature decided they wanted to make sure that Kansas City in particular was not permitted to reduce its funding for police below a certain percent. Now, they were already required to spend at least 20% of their revenue on <clears throat> the police department, but they but the lawmakers decided that they wanted to boost that to 25%. But in order to do it, they had to get the people to pass a constitutional amendment to the Missouri Constitution. So they put this issue on the Missouri Constitution and as with every initiative, one of the things that has to happen is there has to be a fiscal note. So the auditor's office, the state auditor's office, has the responsibility to gather information from city and state governmental entities and find out how much do you think that it will cost or benefit uh, your level of government if this amendment, if this proposed initiative is adopted. And Kansas City responded to the auditor's request by saying it could be millions of dollars that it's going to cost us because um, the legislature in the future could choose to jack up the percentage that we're forced to pay even higher. So they said, let me let me clarify. Kansas City currently is spending about 25% of its revenue on its police department. And so they could not truthfully say that if it's passed, this amendment would increase the amount that they are currently spending. Okay, I want to make clear that's an important issue. As of right now, the bill that was passed would not require an increase in the amount of spending for Kansas City, their response said in the future, if the law is amended even further, we could be required to spend tens of millions of dollars extra. The auditor's office looked at that and she said, it doesn't matter what the law might do in the future. Like we're asking a question of what's the current impact? What's concrete? What is something that we can confidently tell voters instead of simply guessing? And when Kansas City did not have anything more concrete to provide as far as costs, the auditor 
certified a fiscal note that says this uh, passing this this initiative likely will not change anything. It's not going to cost uh, or benefit any level of government at all. And so the city of Kansas City is now arguing that that was misleading and that if the public had been properly informed that it was likely to cost uh, the city tens of millions of extra dollars, then they never would have adopted this in the first place. I think it's a pretty tenuous argument, Um, you know, because one of the things that they're having to argue here is – not just that the ballot statement or the the fiscal note was misleading, they also have to demonstrate that it was so misleading that we cannot be confident of the legitimacy of the vote's outcome. That's what you have to deal with when you are challenging the outcome of an election, and that's what they're doing here. And um, I just don't see any evidence that that we call into question the legitimacy of the outcome. Gary, this initiative passed by 63% of the vote or passed with 63% support from the voters. So basically you've got to say that 13% of the people that voted in favor of this would have to have changed their minds um, and decided not to vote in favor for it. I just don't see any evidence that that's actually likely. And so um, I'm skeptical about the city's position in this. I do not think that the Supreme Court is likely to hold that this initiative was improperly adopted. Um, but I, I get surprised on these things from time to time. So um, we'll know in a few months when the Supreme Court issues its decision there. Well, speaking of law enforcement and the Missouri Supreme Court, but wait, there's more. Uh, the Bill of Rights law uh, for, um, for, law, for uh, law enforcement, what is, what is it and what's the challenge? So this was a law that says that if an individual officer is found liable for police misconduct, then the individual officer is not liable. They're, like, they're not responsible for paying the judgment due to their misconduct. That judgment then gets paid by the political subdivision that they work for. Um, in other words, it insulates these officers from the consequences of their bad actions. Um, now, one thing that I think is really weird about this is as of right now, a lot of these law enforcement agencies already indemnify their officers in these circumstances. So um, in St. Louis, if someone argues that a police officer used excessive force and the court says, well, yes, in fact, they did use excessive force, um, quite frequently, the city of St. Louis the taxpayers of the city of St. Louis end up having to pay the judgment, not the individual officer who was found responsible for the bad behavior. Um, This law simply makes that a requirement rather than an option. Okay. Um, So it's kind of weird that it's being challenged because again, kind of like we saw in Kansas city where they're already spending about 25% of their revenue for their police officers. If St. Louis city is already using the policy that this statute would have put into place, would have made mandatory who's harmed. 
Like, you know, how can you say that you have suffered an injury um, if nothing is actually changing about how the city does business? Um, and But that's that's the argument that's been put out there. Now, I'll tell you, one of the things that I thought was notable about this case and the Kansas City case, Gary, is the Attorney General's office was responsible for defending both of these laws that were being challenged. And I have seen in a number of recent cases, including the Eighth Circuit case dealing with the Second Amendment Preservation Act, that the Attorney General's office is leaning harder and harder into procedural arguments instead of arguing cases on the merits. In other words, addressing the constitutional substance of the argument. They're saying you shouldn't even get to the meat of the argument. You should throw this case out on procedural grounds. Now, that can be a winning strategy, but I think it's a huge problem um, because when you are asking courts to throw out issues and focusing almost exclusively on these procedural issues, that means you are not necessarily giving a full-throated defense to the uh, policy that that the laws that have been challenged represents. You also, I think, if you're victorious, uh, leave the door open for another bite at the apple, no? Possibly, yes. Possibly it leaves the door open for a bite at, uh, for another bite at the apple. Um, but but even if you lose, well, then you haven't given the policy its best defense, but also maybe you are not letting the court fully engage with the issue in the way that it should so that you get a thoroughly reasoned decision. Um, instead, you get kind of, you know, half-hearted, halfway uh, decisions that aren't necessarily really well thought out because – there haven't been two sides of the case, you know, very firmly presented. Um, and, and so I've seen this happening more and more often. And I actually, I had a meeting with the Attorney General's office a couple of weeks ago about the Second Amendment Preservation Act case. And I asked them, I said, why in the world did you focus almost exclusively on the procedural issues instead of defending this policy on the merits? And their response was, well, we knew that we knew that you were going to step up and do that. But here's the thing, Gary. They didn't know that. They hadn't discussed it with me. They didn't know what I was going to write in the brief that we filed uh, in that SAPA case. And, and so, in other words, they were rolling the dice. They did not feel strong. This is my read on it. The office did not feel strongly enough about the importance of establishing or vindicating constitutional principles to actually argue them. Instead, they were content to try and win on technical procedural grounds. And, and I find that quite concerning. We need um, the people that are, that are dealing with these issues in the courts to really tackle the substance. We need the judges to have to engage with the substance. Um, because that's the only way we're going to get well-reasoned opinions. Even if an opinion goes against me, I want it to be well-reasoned so that I know how to argue the next case, right? Yeah. But, um, but, but that's, that's kind of the way that they – and one of, the, one of the judges on the Missouri Supreme Court kind of called him out about it a little bit. Um, Judge Wilson uh, called out the attorney general's office and says, well, you know, you're arguing all these t 
technical issues, what do you think about the merits? You know, can you defend this on the merits? Um, so, yeah, a very, very strange shift that we've seen out of the attorney general's office and, and not a positive one, I think. All right. A topic that we discussed earlier this morning, Donald Trump defrauding banks and insurers. Uh, and and I, I argued that the banks and the insurers weren't weren't the ones filing any complaints. So there wasn't really any harm there. Uh, but uh, the consequences of this, based on the decisions of this judge in New York, are pretty dire. We'll kick that around with Dave Rowland next on The Gary Nolan Show. Good morning. It's 11.52 on a Think Tank Thursday. I just want to remind you that Glenn Beck is coming up right after us. Then Sean Hannity will be on. And then uh, Randy Tobler will be with us. What a great way to uh, wrap up your uh, afternoon drive home. Tomorrow morning, Brandon Rathard is on with Wake Up Mid-Missouri. And we got all the great talkers right here. Uh, and uh, right now joining me is uh, Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org. And I wanted to talk about the, uh, the, the state judge this, uh, in New York that really now has decided that Trump is almost out of business. I mean, he... They may take over his real estate. They've killed his license to do business. Um, and it's all because they decided, determined, that Donald Trump was valuing his real estate at a much higher value than he should have. Uh, and Dave, you know, it, it, the banks weren't complaining. Yeah, and so that was that was the Trump Organization's primary defense here, and, and it's an intuitive one. Um, basically, they they were saying no harm, no foul, um, and the way the New York law is written, though, is that's not really a defense. So let's clarify real quick why this law exists the way that it does. Um, there are circumstances where if you mislead a potential business partner about your own financial position, they will give you much better terms than otherwise you would be entitled to. So if you tell them, you know, my organization is worth several billion dollars, um, they will feel more comfortable lending you money on uh, favorable interest rates or, or amounts. Whereas if you represented the actual value of your organization, they would say, oh, wait, that's, that's a lot riskier than we thought. We are no longer comfortable offering kind of these sweetheart terms. And so there may well be circumstances, including this one, where the company that has misstated its value um, doesn't end up harming their business partners. Like they pay all of their payments on time. They never default on any of the, the loans that have been given them. And that's what gives rise to the no harm, no foul kind of argument. But the position of the state is that you are fraudulently drawing people in to take risks that they are not aware of and that that itself is a harm to society. Like when, when you put a bank in the position of committing itself and its resources by misleading them, um, 
that is a behavior that will ultimately lead to harm, even if it didn't lead to harm in this particular circumstance. And that's why the state wanted to police it. Um, so it will be really interesting to see exactly what the judge orders in terms of how this is going to shake out. Is he going to order the sale of these properties that have been owned by the Trump organization? Is he simply going to appoint a receiver who will be responsible for managing the affairs of those properties, um, basically taking away control of the properties without necessarily depriving the Trump organization of ownership of the properties? Um, those are all on the table. But the thing that really struck me about this, though, Gary, um, is the boldness of the lies that were revealed here. Um, and it doesn't look like the Trump organization really was trying to argue that they weren't lies. That's why they were falling back on this no harm, no foul idea. Um, but it, it seems really, really clear from the evidence in this case that the Trump, and I'm, I don't know that we can make Donald Trump himself personally responsible, but the organization itself absolutely knew that what it was telling its its would be business partners was definitely untrue, and and that is concerning. You know, it may not have led directly to harm in these circumstances, but it is definitely concerning that a would-be business partner would be willing to tell those untruths. Wouldn't because, uh, if our system uh, is going to work, it, hold it, hold it, hold have a level of trust. Wouldn't uh, a bank have an obligation to bring in an appraiser and do their own appraisal? Uh, not necessarily an obligation, no. Like, if, if one side represents, we have had this property appraised, here is what we think the value is, then you, there's not necessarily an obligation on the other side. Well, it would be a fiduciary responsibility to uh, shareholders and, uh, and other depositors to make sure they're engaging in a deal worth perhaps billions of dollars. Well, let's say let's say you're going to buy, uh, buy a house if the seller represents to you that they have had an inspector come in and inspect the property and they didn't find any problems or, or whatever. A lot of people would be willing, as long as you name who the inspector was and when the inspection was done, a lot of people will take that at face value. They will not necessarily insist on bringing in their own inspector. To they, may not, the they may not insist. But if they're going to buy, they probably should. It's like, uh, did you read the disclosure? Yeah, I agree. Uh, you can take that risk, but it, it is a risk. Uh, I do think that uh, his organization lied. Uh, I do think that uh, that put other deposits in those banks at risk. But I also think i got to run because I'm out of time. Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Gary. All right, buddy. Take care. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day. Carpe diem, Gwen, baby, honey, I'm coming home.